I next met with Dr. Moshe Talpez, and to begin, he commented on ash papers on myelofibrosis, beginning with two late-breaking abstracts on the underlying biology of this disease. These two abstracts from two different centers shed light on the 40 to 50% of myelofibrosis patients and essential thrombocythemia patients that didn't have a known JAK2 mutation so far. As it turns out, the majority of them, while not all of them, have a new characterized mutation in a gene and subsequently a protein called col reticulin. The col reticulin is apparently undergoing either a deletion, something that we call interstitial deletion, or insertion, which means an addition, in the exon 9, which leads to activation of the calreticulin protein. Apparently, this is a protein that sits in the endoplasmic reticulum, and it is dislocated from its location, and in his new role, it does activate the JAK2. So here we have a case of upstream activation of JAK2, without mutation in the JAK2. And that explains to us very well why JAK2 inhibitors can work in JAK2 non-mutated myelofibrosis and essential thrombocytemia. So in the vast majority of cases now of both myelofibrosis and essential thrombocythemia, we have a genomic event whether it's the only event, primary event, that's a subject for additional research, but it's a major event. And both events, whether it's a mutation in calreticulin or a mutation in JAK2, both of those activate the JAK2 pathway, induce a proliferative pathway in the neoplastic cells and lead to the development of either essential thrombocytemia or myelofibrosis. Now, are there any therapeutic implications? I mean, it's interesting now, kind of like you said, it sort of explains why it seems like almost all the patients respond to JAK inhibition. But could you envision a direct attack on these mutant cells by some other type of targeted agent? I don't know if that is critical because it seems that the JAK-STAT pathway, which is activated by these two genetic events, is a critical pathway. It's not the only pathway. We know that multiple other proliferative pathways are activated in this disease, or in these diseases. Whether it's a direct contribution of the JAK2 pathway, signaling pathway, or activation of other pathways, such as the phosphatidyl-inositol kinase delta, that's still a subject of research. But it seems that a combination of therapies with several anti-proliferative survival inhibitor drugs is something that we will go forward with. As you will see down the road, in some of the abstracts that were discussed, I will not discuss it in detail because it's a laboratory abstract, but there is a proposal to study a combination of hedgehog inhibitor together with JAK2 inhibitor. So apparently the hedgehog, there is clear evidence that the hedgehog pathway is also activated in myelofibrosis, and a combination of the two is either already going on or in the planning. So there will be more than one company that will study the combination of JAK2 inhibitor and hedgehog inhibitors. 
Have there been any clinical or objective responses to hedgehog inhibitors in MF? I think that I have heard, and again, indirectly I've heard about occasional responses in AML, in acute myeloid leukemia. I don't know about data in myelofibrosis, but it makes a great deal of sense to expand on it. During ASH, there was a presentation from animal models of the combination of hedgehog inhibitor and ejacto inhibitor, which at least in the mouse model was very effective. So let's move on to some more clinical data. And Dr. Verstevec presented some more follow-up from the Comfort One study. The Comfort One study is now maturing and reaching, it's about 142 weeks, I think, of follow-up, about three years of follow-up. And there are some interesting features that are emerging. I would say, to me, the most interesting feature is the durability of the response. At least half of the patients with greater than 35% reduction in splenic volume continue to respond, which means it's a nice duration of response. It's not trivial. It's not short-lived. The second element that is worthwhile to mention is the survival benefit of the patients treated with ruxolitinib over the placebo control, despite the fact that the vast majority of the patients on the placebo control were switched over or crossed over to be treated with ruxolitinib. Nevertheless, the advantage is still apparent. And that's a nice finding. I don't think that we can conduct a study without crossover. So survival was not the end point of this study, but it turned out that there is a difference in survival and it emerges very early in the course of treatment and it's ongoing. Could I just pick up on that? Because that's always fascinated me. And here, I think they're reporting a hazard rate of 0.69. So it's pretty significant. But when you actually look, because I think when they first started reporting this, you mentioned the crossover. The crossover occurred extremely quickly. So it was almost like you were randomizing between getting it right away and getting it soon. The formal crossover was at 24 weeks, but if the patient was extremely symptomatic, I assume that the crossover was earlier. Even 24 weeks is pretty yes, very quick early. Yes. to see a survival benefit. What does that tell you? I wonder whether these patients are just in such bad general condition that you just really can't wait to get them on treatment or whether or not maybe in a sense they're getting treatment too late. Okay, so both questions are important and should be addressed independently. First, let's say that the Comfort 2 study, which was also presented during this ASH, but is not one of the abstracts that we have selected, also shows, to a lesser extent, it's a smaller study and it's not compared to placebo, but to best available treatment, also shows a survival advantage. So whether it's totally reproducible story and whether it will continue in other randomized studies, that's to be seen. But what it implies, you brought two extremely important points. The surprising is the survival benefit, if you look at it, starts to emerge very clearly in less than one year. And the two curves separate early in less than one year, which means, and I expect that the survival benefit will emerge much later. There will be survival benefit, but especially among the patients that are the best responders, where I expected to see a disease slowdown. Now, the reason for that is probably exactly what you've just said. Some of the patients with very advanced disease, because this study was directed to high-risk disease and intermediate to risk disease, so there were high-risk patients who had short projected survival, they seem to 
have benefited, at least a subset of them, have benefited from the treatment. It would be very nice to analyze and find out who is this subset. Are they the one with very big spleen, very proliferative disease, that the disease was slowed down by this treatment? This requires some further nice multivariate analysis. But your questions are exactly to the point. Shouldn't we go to low-risk myelofibrosis and treat them I assume that the downside for companies is you need a very long follow-up because these patients inherently live longer, but the benefit may be much more pronounced. In other words, they may have a better splenic response and it may last longer. Well, also, even whether it's low risk or not, just maybe treating patients before they get too sick. I think that that's always been the way we develop things in oncology, and that is the natural thing to be done here. I think that companies have clearly been interested in the question. I know that because I proposed such a study. It didn't go forward for a variety of reasons, but I'm still very intrigued by the notion of testing low-risk myelofibrosis and see if these patients can have a much deeper response as far as splenic reduction, but beyond that, if we can reverse fibrosis in these patients. Any comment on the data that they presented there from Comfort One on anemia and thrombocytopenia, particularly in terms of the time course of when they saw a new onset? It seems that if you look the anemia and thrombocytopenia, it's there, no question about it. This drug is a myelosuppressive drug, as inherently every JAK2 inhibitor is, because they inhibit the pathways associated with hematopoietic growth factors. But it seems that the majority of problems is seen, or the majority of this toxicity is seen in the first six months of treatment and dwindles to a trickle. Some additional cases are seen beyond six months, but the numbers are small. And that applies primarily to anemia. Thrombocytopenia seems to be stabilizing very early and doesn't tend to get worse with time. Anything else that came out of this that you want to comment on? No, those are the dominant issues that impressed me in this particular study. The safety profile, the stability of the drug, and the fact that we have seen responses that are remarkable and ongoing. It is important because it corrects the notion that the responses are fleeting. In other words, short-lived, a few months. That's not the case. By the way, looking at the data... For patients that have a deep major splenic reduction, to some extent, this effect is going on in 80 to 90% of the patients. The same or better response as seen initially is still ongoing, as I've said, in 50% of the patients beyond three years. So some benefit is derived in the vast majority of patients that had a good splenic response. I have to ask you, in those patients who lose their response, outside of putting them on a trial of another agent, What can you do outside of a trial setting? Well, at this point, as we know, only one JAK2 inhibitor has been approved. So the mechanism of resistance to JAK2, if it is a true resistance, was analyzed in one study by Ross Levine, who found activation of the JAK2 through altered mechanisms, not through the mutation. But whether that's the single mechanism for resistance, that's not clear. In any case, mutations in the JAK2 have not been seen so far. But in a study with fedratinib, which is now obsolete because the drug is not being developed further, in a study with fedratinib in resistant patients, we have seen remarkable responses, not very different from patients who were untreated at all with a JAK2 inhibitor, which means these patients 
can benefit from at least one other JAK2 inhibitor, and that is potentially a generic phenomenon. Whether it happens with other JAK2 inhibitors, that's to be seen. The alternative question is because the study is not a controlled study. The alternative question is what happens if you interrupt the treatment for a while with the ruxolitinib and resume it? Will some patients respond again? Because apparently resistance is not a genomic phenomenon, but it's driven by different mechanisms. What about this paper, 392, looking at patients who had allogeneic transplant, 22 patients who had received ruxolitinib prior to transplant? That's something that there's been a lot of interest in. What was seen here? Yeah, you asked me a previous question that deserves an answer. What can be done, which is not research? Right. And this is really the answer. What can be done that is not research for these patients? There are several drugs with low activity in this disease, ranging from steroids, lenalidomide, danazole, which have some activity, not remarkable activity. They can be tested. Splenectomy is of some value. It generates some short-lived remissions, but the patients do have some quality of life improvement, at least for a while. The only definitive treatment is bone marrow transplant, which, of course, has an issue with it being risky in patients that are not young, the median age of the patients that we deal with is anywhere between 65 to 70, and not all of them, or many of them are not candidates for transplant being in not such good condition. In this abstract of bone marrow transplant after treatment with ruxolitinib, this is a small study. I don't want to read too much into it. It's a study of 22 patients or so, but there have been only three treatment-related fatalities, which is a low number, and there has not been graft failure and graft rejection, and the patients clearly enter the treatment in better shape than they would have entered without this treatment. So it seems that JAK2 inhibitor can be beneficial to transplant, one, for the very basic reason of improvement of patients' physical condition, weight, muscle mass, and so forth. And the other issue is, of course, it depletes the disease and may facilitate better recovery of hemopoiesis and so forth. So the initial hints are that this is a worthwhile effort. It would be nice to see larger and perhaps controlled studies to address this question because, as we stated earlier, transplant is the only definitive treatment for the disease. Is this a strategy that you're using or your group is using right now in your practice? No. At this point, we go the following way. We start with oxalitinib or an experimental drug, and we continue until resistance, at which point we send the patient for transplant consideration if he has the right physical features that allow him to go through transplant. The reason for that is the notion that transplant is still very risky, and we have to exert the maximum benefit from the JAK2 inhibitors as far as survival benefit before we go to transplant. But I think that the studies that were shown here, and albeit being very small, single arm and not definitive, indicates to us that there is no reason why to wait. But the next question is, who should be transplanted? Should it be patients that have only symptom improvement and minimal improvement in spleen, and they are not going to have long remissions? In other words, we should get better data from a multivariate analysis, what impacts the duration of remission, and go from there to identify the subsets that will benefit from transplant. Because after all, as I said, it is a hazardous procedure, 
and we want to limit it to the patients that will have a real benefit from it. Okay, next we have a whole series of papers on new agents in myelofibrosis, beginning with 665, the phase one study of LY278. 4544, JAK2 selective inhibitor. So I will talk generically about three of those drugs because I don't think there is too much information. I don't want to dwell too much on those. What I can say is that the first abstract, 665, is an abstract by Verstovsek. The drug is a JAK2 inhibitor, which is currently completing phase one study. There is two messages that apply to this drug. One, it is active. The company sees it as a selective JAK2 inhibitor, which is likely to cause less anemia. And the initial hints are that perhaps there is less anemia, but this is a phase one, and I don't want to read too much into it. The second message is there have been some cases of acute renal toxicity, which perhaps exceed the extent of similar toxicities that we have seen with roxelatinib. And that question has to be addressed as well. So, this is early development of a drug, of a new JAK2 inhibitor, and three additional studies, which I will mention, are 393108 and 395. And the reason I want to mention it is to emphasize there is more drugs which are JAK2 inhibitors, and each one of those has different issues. 393 deals with a completed study of close to 300 patients with fedratinib. Fedratinib or SAR302503, has shown good response rate in this randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled study. Regretfully, this was followed by a report of toxicity in the form of several cases with Wernicke's encephalopathy, and it was decided by the company not to develop the drug further. So I had heard about this, and I was trying to remember from my medical school days in terms of the pathophysiology of Wernicke's encephalopathy. What's going on here in your own mind? First of all, I should emphasize, I have been personally involved with this study, not the phase three. I've done the phase one and phase two enrolled all together, and I've done also the ruxolitinib refractory patient study. So I assume I enrolled all together about 40 patients, and I didn't come across this toxicity or other neurologic toxicity, but that, of course, doesn't mean it doesn't happen. How many cases were reported? Five or six. Hmm, wow. And actually in a cluster at once, it actually didn't spread over a significant period. It was kind of reported at one, and the notion was that it's driven by a B1, vitamin B1 deficiency, and patients were then subject to be treated with B1. And so were there thoughts about trying to use the vitamin B1 to prevent this? I have not heard about any follow-up of fedratinib since the study was discontinued. So this drug is pretty much out of the picture? As it appears to be at this point. Wow. Yeah, I thought it was a good drug, and the studies were very, very carefully conducted and clean studies. And I would hate to see this drug not being used, but that's the case right now. And I think it actually, if I remember, there was actually, I think, a press release saying that it was a positive study not that long ago. As far as I know, the study is a positive study. So it has similar benefit to ruxolitinib. Very similar. But this problem with encephalopathy. Yeah, it's very similar. It's perhaps a little more toxic with gastrointestinal symptoms. What happened with those patients in Sinai that had, was it reversible? Yeah, I think there was one fatality. And as far as I know, the other cases were reversible. But again, I'm not fully subjected to the information, so I, I don't know if I can give you accurate information. Did they present that in their data? 
as far as I know, in the oral presentation, this was added. Hmm. This was mentioned in the ASH presentation because I've mentioned that there have been the phase three, the phase two data, and there is this resistant disease data. So as far as I know, Sanofi did present that this toxicity with the explanation why the drug is not being developed any further. So we have at least three drugs which are JAK2 inhibitors, whether selective or less selective, which are currently in various stages of studies and in development, and we are talking about the LY, the pacritinib, and the momilotinib. So speaking about anemia, what were your thoughts about Dr. Teferi's presentation looking at pomalidomide? This study, this randomized study, which again, by the way of disclosure, I was part of, even though I'm not a co-author, failed to show significant advantage in resolving anemia through the use of pomalidomide in patients with anemia complicating myelofibrosis. So the expectation was to see a significant benefit, and that was not the case, and it may be an inherent feature of this particular study, and hopefully we'll see another study in the future, but this is as much as what I have to say about this one. I want to comment on another study. There is the other Teferi study that we want to mention with a totally different drug. We are talking about imatelstat, imatelstat, a telomerase inhibitor, which was tested in myelofibrosis. The principal investigator was Dr. Ayalo Teferi. It's a small study in a small number of patients, but the interesting finding with this drug is the response rate. The response rate was 44%. This is a remarkable number with a non-JAK2 inhibitor. This includes five patients, or 28%, who actually had a bone marrow, a peripheral blood morphology criteria for complete remission, or partial remission. Four of the patients had complete remission, one had partial remission, and they had remarkable bone marrow improvement with reduction or elimination of fibrosis, including two of the patients with complete elimination of the mutated JAK2 allele burden. So that is interesting. The toxicity of the drug was primarily myelosuppression, but this is a small, tiny study, and you really want to see it confirmed and see that it holds water in the way it was presented. Have any similar drugs been studied in myelofibrosis? And what is it? It kind of sounds like a cytotoxic. Well, as I said, it is a telomerase inhibitor. It's an enzyme inhibitor. It was previously shown to be effective in a central thrombocytemia. And I think that was presented during ASH two years ago. And Dr. Teferi relates to the mechanism. He feels that it has to do with spliceosome mutation. Patients that have a spliceosome mutation had a high response rate versus a very low response rate in patients without this mutation. But again, the groups were tiny. In 18 patients, six had the spliceosome mutation and 12 didn't have it. So again, this has to have some further confirmation. There is another paper I do want to mention, and that's the paper by Venucci. The paper by Venucci identified already earlier that patients with a series of mutations, in addition to the JAK2 
or separate from the dark room, but usually they go together. And we are talking about ASXL and the TET2 and some other mutations. These patients are considered high-risk patients. They have a worse prognosis. And their outcome in the COMFORT2 study was also worse than the average patient without these mutations. So it's important to emphasize that additional prognostic groups are emerging, and they may have significance both in assessing treatment responses and in assessing prognosis in addition to what we refer to as the IPSS. So I'm going to ask you one question, which is I was kind of surprised to see that there's a press release, and hopefully we're going to be seeing the data soon, looking at ruxolitinib and pancreatic cancer combined with capecitabine. And I've been asking every GI investigator I know what they know about it, what they think about it. Nobody seems to know anything. Do you know anything and do you have any thoughts about if this really plays out, what's going on? Yeah, my thoughts on that have been clear and have been ongoing for several years. The JAK-STAT pathway is activated in numerous cancers. I wouldn't say all the cancers, but it's activated in many, many cancers. The reason for activation in the vast majority of cases is not mutations in this signaling pathway, but it's probably through activation of the canonical pathway by growth factors. The JAK-STAT has a lot to do with the interplay between microenvironment and the cell, whether the normal cell or the tumor cell. And there is very good reason to believe that in many tumors, the microenvironment is abnormal, releases certain cytokines. I can give you an example, interleukin-6, which is a driver of JAK2. I am interested in this pathway, the interplay in the bone marrow stem cell niche between growth factors, the niche, and the stem cell of the malignancy in many situations, primarily leukemia. So the notion that JAK2 is, first of all, we know already, the JAK2 is active in situations that the JAK2 is activated and doesn't have to have a mutation. We have to assume that in a situation like pancreatic cancer, there is very, very heavy stroma, by the way, in pancreatic cancer. And there may be a very strong interplay, stroma, malignant cell, and uh, through cytokines, through adhesion molecules, and so forth. So yes, it makes a great deal of sense, and I want to see it explored much more in other situations. I'm going to explore it, by the way, in leukemia. And, you know, I'm still not exactly clear what's going on in myelofibrosis, whether this is mainly, you know, symptom improvement, and that's, so you know, they're allowing patients to be sort of generally healthier, and that's why they're living longer, or whether it's really interfering with the underlying pathogenesis of the cancer. First, I'll maybe go back to that and say, what's your current thinking on that? And then in terms of using it in solid tumors, for example, would you imagine that this is more a symptomatic thing or actually affecting the pathogenesis and progression? Okay, so let's first address the myelofibrosis. As a clinician, I would say, I look at the following events. Either JAK2 and calreticulin are already mutated in essential thrombocytemia and polycythemia vera. The same mutation exists in myelofibrosis. So these mutations by themselves cannot explain the full phenotypic appearance of myelofibrosis. If that would be the case, why is polycythemia vera very different and distinct from myelofibrosis when it actually has the same mutation? Which means in myelofibrosis, there has to be additional players in addition to this mutation. Whether it's the genes that we have mentioned, such as 
IDH12, TET2, ASXL, and so forth, and other ones which regulate the epigenetics or other stories we don't know, but it's clearly JAK2 is not the full story. The major effect of JAK2 inhibitors, in my view, are the inhibition of the proliferative signal. The inhibition of the proliferative signal is highly effective in many cases where the disease is highly proliferative. So the answer to your question, is it really a symptomatic relief or is it dealing with the fundamental pathophysiology of the disease, is in between. It's neither nor. It does inhibit the proliferative thrust of the disease and can generate survival benefit and maybe reversal of fibrosis this way. It is not dealing with the very substantial fundamentals of the disease, which is probably fairly complex and have to do with stem cells, with niche, with interaction between a stem cell and its environment in the bone marrow, with the defects in adhesion and so forth. So I don't think that the drugs that we are using now provide the full answer. They provide some answer, but the story of myelofibrosis is way more complicated. Now, I think that the effect of using JAK2 inhibitors is probably through reduction of a survival signal. You have to assume that JAK-STAT generates a pro-survival signal and probably, in a way, an anti-apoptotic signal, and removing it renders the cell more susceptible to either cytotoxic or other form of attack, whether targeted therapy or not targeted therapy. So I think that the effect exceeds symptomatic effect, but does not deal, again, with the very fundamentals of the cancer. It's one additional aspect of treatment of cancer but most of the solid tumors will require a multi-pronged strategy and not only one, you know, it's not a CML story. Are there any other solid tumors that you sort of have a general feeling about that might be interesting to look at in terms of JAK inhibition? Or are there studies going on looking at other tumors? I don't know about studies going on, but if you think about breast cancer, breast cancer clearly has a very remarkable stat activation. I think it's primarily STAT5, which is also driven by JAK2. So yes, as a matter of fact, STAT is activated in the vast majority of tumors by whether it's the standard mechanism, which means the physiologic canonical mechanism, or whether it is the through a different altered pathway, through activation of the STAT, through SARC or whatever, that has to be sorted out. But there is a role for JAK2 inhibition, in my view, in way more than just myelofibrosis. Think about lymphoma or think about myeloma. What about those conditions where you have good reasons to believe that the, well, we know it's not good reason to believe, it's well studied, that in large cell lymphoma, the JAK-STAT pathway is deranged, it's activated through different mechanisms. Now, there is, in my view, a much broader role than the single agent therapies that we have seen in myelofibrosis. And I hope, I know that there are already ongoing studies. I know that those are, ongoing, but I'd like to see a much broader exploration of the effect of interfering with the JAKSTAT axis. So let's talk a little bit about CML. As always, we saw a bunch of papers there. I don't know exactly how many, if any, were really practice changing, but maybe you can kind of go through some of the major oral presentations. Yeah, I will not do all of them because I'm not sure that all of them are of great importance, but we'll mention the following. First is Saglio's update year number four of NEST and D. The major point that I want to emphasize, I don't see huge differences between this study and the decision studies that was presented by Dr. Cortez. You know, the NEST and D is with nilotinib and the decision is with the satinib. And I think they have very, very similar results, even though, in my view, 
and nesting these studies that was conducted more carefully with larger number of patients, and that's why the appearance of more impressive data. The major messages is, of course, the difference in major molecular responses between the treatment arms. There were two treatment arms with different doses of nilotinib, but the ones that was approved is 300 milligrams twice daily. And compared to imatinib, there's still this 20% difference in favor of the nilotinib. And the deep molecular response, the MR4.5, was seen in 40% of the patients with nilotinib and 23% of the patients with imatinib. Nice difference. It was there before the difference is maintained. It's kind of, they go in parallel. Why is it important? It's not important in survival advantage. If you look at the survival data, they are not dramatically different between the various arms, the control and the treatment arm. Well, again, this was a crossover study, but there is no dramatic difference in survival. I think that if our current trend is to go for what we call quote-unquote cure, which means treatment discontinuation, this study demonstrates that a much larger cohort of patients on nilotinib or the satinib, for that matter, can be candidates for treatment discontinuation than patients on imatinib. So if the basic principle is that the same percentage of patients in deep molecular emission can be discontinued and not relapsed, as with imatinib, that means more patients will benefit from being off treatment. It means up to 40% of the patients are now candidates to treatment discontinuation. And if the previous figure of imatinib is correct, about 16% of the patients, of the total population, or 40% of the deep molecular responders, will remain without disease relapse, without treatment. So that's nice. This is a huge issue in CML because of the cost of treatment, because of emerging complications with CML treatment, and we cannot ignore it. Speaking of that, could I just ask, though, before you go, because you mentioned more complications, and in that enist nd follow-up, it looked like they're starting to see more cardiovascular problems. I was about to comment on that. Before I get to this, I want to talk about one more finding, and that is the fact that the number of patients that either progressed or developed blast crisis did not increase, and it totally matches the story with, with the iris study with imatinib. And the story is the following. The events, if they are to happen, happen in the first year or two or three, and subsequently there is no new events. These events have been reduced to a trickle in the case of nilotinib. There is a very small number of cases with disease progression. The company presented it as 0.7%, but I think that that analysis was incorrect because they did not include the patients that dropped off study. When they included those, the percent is a little higher, but still it's remarkably low and there is no new cases. That means those that were about to progress, those progressed very early. New ones did not happen over time. And with the use of nilotinib, some of the patients that were candidate for progression, as seen with imatinib, have now been taken away from that group and have a sustained remission. So that's nice. The incidence of progression has been diminished to a trickle. The survival is excellent, and the progression-free survival is excellent as well. But let's address the issue of the development of toxicity, specifically cardiovascular toxicity, and we are talking about coronary events, strokes, and peripheral vascular arterial disease. In this particular study, there is a report on increased incidence. I think they are quoting 
a number of about 3 point something percent. In a separate study coming from Austria, they argued a much higher incidence. That's a small study, although they studied the mechanism there and studied in greater detail what's going on. And their argument was that the incidence is higher. So that cannot be ignored, and the patients have to be monitored tightly for the risk of cardiovascular complications. Could I just ask what your vision is about the pathophysiology of how this happens? And do you think that these are the same basic kind of events that have been seen with panotinib? It's hard to say. In the Austrian work, the pathophysiology is suggested through activation of certain cytokines, whether it's platelet-derived growth factors or other It's cytokines which have proliferative intimal effect. And I can't recall, so I don't want to be, I want to be accurate, so I can't recall exactly. But they identified certain alteration in cytokines which stimulate intimal proliferation and fibrosis. And they provided with some compelling pathophysiologic explanation to what's happening. I've heard the term vasospastic reactions also. I think it's beyond that. I think that they argue it's actually anatomic change. Now, the ponatinib story we need to address because the incidence was much higher. So I think that I summarized already the dasatinib and the nilotinib story. Nice remissions. There is really not much difference between dasatinib and nilotinib. They both reach about the same level of major molecular response, the same rate, well, a little bit lower rate of progressive disease with nilotinib, but really not something to write home. It's a small difference. In terms of cardiac issues, do you see dasatinib and nilotinib about the same? No, I think that probably dasatinib has more lung stories, mainly the story of pleural effusion, but this is a second story, the development of pulmonary hypertension through a mechanism that is different, and I see less vascular complications. So I think that there is a difference, and that was analyzed, by the way. The incidence of cardiovascular complication in the comparison between dasatinib and imatinib, it was not higher for dasatinib, unlike the nilotinib, which has a higher incidence of cardiovascular complications than imatinib. So as far as ponatinib, as we know, we know the story with this drug, it was for a while pulled off the market, but it's again in use, but with extreme caution. We can use it, but with restrictions. We have learned that there is a significant risk of cardiovascular complications. And based on the analysis provided this year, this risk appears to be age-dependent and dose-dependent. So clearly patients with history of cardiovascular disease, patients with history of hypertension, and older patients are more prone to complications related to this drug. Is there sort of a sweet spot in terms of dose where you could get the efficacy without the cardiovascular? I think so. Okay, by the way, one more thing. Very different than nilotinib, this drug causes hypertension. That's a very, very frequent story. So the pathophysiology may be distinct because the incidence of hypertension is 67%. Okay, let's say that this is identifying every potential change in blood pressure or even patients that had blood pressure at the beginning. But still, it's a high incidence. So that's another component in the pathophysiology. It's clear that 45 milligrams, which was the recommended dose, was associated with quite a number of complications. Preliminary data indicate that a dose of 15 milligrams, one-third of the original dose, is much safer, but this has to be subjected to a formal study. The preliminary data that was provided in the abstract is that patients that were switched to a lower dose, 
the vast majority of them did not lose any ground. In terms of the CML? In terms of the response in the CML. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have to be studied prospectively. It has to. Is there any interest at this point in looking at Panatinib up front? I know there was a big phase three study that got stopped. Do you think that's dead or ever going to resurrect? I think that that is probably not going to be developed. You have to understand the following situation. Patients don't die with CML. So even if you have a drug, and there is here a presentation from a single institution, Dr. Cortez presented 50 cases from MD Anderson, and you see a very, very high response rate, very nice molecular response rate. Every patient have a complete cytogenetic response, but 20% of cardiovascular complications. They didn't lose any patients, but the incidence of cardiovascular complications is such that you said, we have such safer drugs, and the response rate is not dramatically different, and we have almost no deaths. How can we justify it using a drug that has risks? In other words, I don't see it as a frontline drug. I'm curious how often or how many times, for example, in the last year you've used panatinib outside a trial setting. I do use it, and I have both patients on trial setting, which are ongoing, and I have several patients off trial setting, and they do remarkably well. It may well be the most powerful drug in CML, but with its problems. You can see that it's a remarkable drug based on the phase two data presented by Cortez. You see that patients have a higher response rate as far as major and complete cytogenetic responses in patients that already failed two to three drugs. They failed at least imatinib and a second drug. They have a higher response rate than what you have seen with drugs like the satinib and nilotinib given immediately after imatinib failure, which means it's a more powerful drug. And you're using the full dose, 45 milligrams? No, I don't use it at all. The vast majority of patients, I use 15 milligrams. I think I have a patient that gets 30, one patient. The vast majority of patients are intentionally use lower doses. Interesting. You mentioned the issue of discontinuation of therapy, and in ASH we saw some more data from the STEM1 and STEM2 trials. Any comment on that? Yeah, the results are fairly consistent. The STEM1, STEM2, and there is another STEM with a different name, shows that it's about 40% of the patients, and also an Australian study shows a similar number, 40% of the patients do not relapse, although we don't know exactly who will be the ones that will relapse or not relapse, and we know that almost all of the patients have residual disease, even if they don't relapse. They have detectable disease, but it doesn't mean the disease is coming back. That's one piece of information. Dr. Mahone, in another STEAM study, was able to demonstrate that some of the patients that relapsed and were retreated, he could stop again, and a small group of them didn't relapse again. So he has some salvage regimen, which even if the patient relapsed, he goes again through another course of imatinib, and he will salvage a few more patients. But in essence, it's less than half of the patients that have a complete sustained molecular remission, which is with imatinib, it's only about 10-15% of the patients. Only half of them will be able to maintain off-treatment. Maybe with nilotinib, the numbers will increase. What do you think it's going to take for this to actually come into practice? Just more data like this? Or are we going to really need a predictor, better predictors? No, I think you want to play it safe. So I assume that you want a very large body of data, and I assume that Europeans are doing it. They are fairly organized in CML studies. There is only one issue, safety. If none of the patients progresses and none of the patients becomes resistant, and I looked at the series and I've seen only one patient in all the series, whether French or Australian, only one patient that was subsequently resistant to treatment. So if the incidence is extremely low, it is safe to interrupt treatment. But the patient has to be monitored closely. If the disease comes back, 
treatment has to be resumed, but there is no problem. The disease comes back, treatment is resumed. There is no loss of ground. So I don't see a problem with such a study. I think it should be done beyond the study. I think that once we have sufficient number of patients, it should be a policy because it will take away from toxicities, from inconveniences, and will identify a group of patients that is doing remarkably well. And so, but right now, outside a trial setting, is this something that you absolutely think should never be done? Do you think that in an informed patient who wants to do it, it's okay? What are your thoughts? I don't think that we have established a policy. Personally, I'd like to see, you know, I started to do it many, many years ago when I developed interferon, and that is going back to the late 1980s and early 1990s, where a subset of patients, I stopped the treatment, the disease has never come back. And that's a similar story. It doesn't matter what drug, it seems that it's a repeat concept. I personally would do it only under a very tightly controlled environment, which means very tight monitoring with PCR if the disease comes back, resume treatment. And if that cannot be provided, I don't like to see it being done in doctor's offices without monitoring. That can be risky. I'm going to ask you about another paper by Dr. Apperly looking at dose interruption of TKIs in the first three months of therapy. Can you talk about what they looked at there and what your thoughts were? I think that this is an important paper. And the reason it's an important paper, all of us confronted that situation of treatment interrupt. This is forced treatment interruption. This is not a planned one. This is forced interruption, especially in the first year of treatment, which is false because the patient developed pancytopenia, mainly thrombocytopenia and neutropenia. And that's not rare. And Dr. Apperly separates three groups, those that didn't have interruption, those that have less than 14 days interruption, and those that had more than 14 days interruption. And with treatment, either with imatinib, and I think the other one is dasatinib. And what they noted is that patients that have interruptions have lower three months response rate is what has been defined less than 10% disease by three months and lower cytogenetic response rate by the end of one year. That figure doesn't surprise me. It's probably not explainable by the fact that these patients didn't get the full dose intensity as the others. I think that the explanation is the following. Patients that require interruptions have a problem with their pool of normal stem cells. They have a poor recovery of the normal stem cells and they are probably a group of patients with a worse outlook, and some of them will never have a good cytogenetic response, as we have seen. And probably she identified those patients. Some of them will eventually catch up. The normal hemopoiesis will be restored. Some will never catch up, and we have seen it. And in a small number of patients, it's probably an indication of early progression of the disease. So yes, I think it's an important piece of information and gives us a hint based on therapy on some of the patients that are unlikely to do well. So really what you're saying is it's not so much the dose interruption as that it's identifying a group of people who have a worse prognosis. I think so, because I think the dose interruption identifies a pathophysiologic event, which means under the effect of the malignancy over time, there was a dwindling of the pool of the normal cells. This cannot make a recovery anymore or cannot make a good recovery, and they represent a different prognostic group than the others, at least a small subset. Any other papers in CML, even ones that we didn't include here, that you want to comment on? There is one study perhaps I want to mention. It's a study of CML in older patients treated with imatinib. And the study is interesting because it shows the following. One, older patients can be treated very well with imatinib without any difference from younger patients. This is patients over 70. 
there is no difference in their ability to tolerate imatinib. As a matter of fact, a subset of them received high doses of imatinib. Furthermore, some of them, as I said, could get 800 milligrams and get away with it. The response rate is not substantially different than younger patients treated with imatinib. And the survival of this patient is not different than the projected outlook of similar patients at the same age without CML. That's perhaps the most interesting feature. <laughs> it was funny. The projected survival of one subset was 101%, which means <laughs> better, than the, better than the projected population without CML. In other words, age should not be a deterrent from using tyrosine kinase inhibitors. These patients tolerate this treatment fairly well. Would you approach things differently in an older person with underlying cardiovascular disease? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And this is the art of medicine compared to, you know, the study of medicine. In the art of medicine, if you have a patient with borderline congestive heart failure, I will never use imatinib. I've seen this patient gaining tremendous amount of weight. I will not use nilotinib and certainly not ponatinib. So the drugs for this patient, probably the preferred drug, by me, is bosutinib because it doesn't have the lung toxicity and it seems that it has, unless proven otherwise, a safe cardiovascular profile. So it taught every patient is for me a basis for making choices between five drugs and those choices are not necessarily a function of a study but the features of the patient. Age, coexisting comorbidities, drugs that he is being treated with and so forth. So you start bosutinib as first-line therapy in some patients? That has not happened. You remember that they had a study that didn't work up to show difference, but I think it was primarily a problem with the study, not a problem with the drug. Right. It's very likely to end up like all the other drugs with the same difference from imatinib. So did I start with first line? No. I did not start bosutinib in any case with first line treatment, but I used it actually in special cases, patients that couldn't tolerate any other drug. I can recall a patient with a cardiomyopathy who couldn't tolerate any other treatment and is now in complete molecular remission on a very small dose of bosutinib. A patient in his 80s was not able to tolerate any other drug and ended up with bosutinib. So at this point, it's special cases, but the drug with a relatively safe profile, so I intend to use it fairly often as a second-line drug because at this point, it looks like it has a very good safety profile. <laughs> 